Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. Today I'm speaking with Franz Nicolay about his new novel, Someone Should Pay for Your Pain. Franz, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for having me. Great to be here. So Franz, you're, you're most well known as, uh, as, a, as a musician, as a you know, keyboard player and, and, and other instrumentalist, um, but you, uh, you decided to write a novel. This is not your first fiction, but it is your first uh, full-length novel. I, I wonder why you wanted to write a novel and why you wanted to write this novel. Uh, it seemed like the next step. You know, I had been working up toward, to my first book, writing longer and longer uh, p- pieces for magazines and so on. Um, and then the first book, Humorless Ladies of Border Control, which was a, a travelogue, um, um, came out in 2016 and, you know, it didn't set the world on fire, but did well enough to, to justify writing another one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, and I had, that, that was at a time in my life where it, I didn't, I had come off the road when my first, when my daughter was born. Um, and it didn't seem like maybe I was going to be a musician anymore. So I was start trying to figure out what my, uh, the second half of my professional life was going to be. Um, and seemed like writing and teaching, uh, was going to be the way forward. Um, and so I sort of thought that, that trying, you know, having done a book length nonfiction book length fiction might be the next, uh, the next thing to try. Um, and if it didn't work, it it didn't work, but, uh, but, but that at least I ought to try it. And this book is sort of, uh, not, not a travelogue it's fictional, but there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of traveling around the country, touring around the country in this book. So it feels like a natural progression from the previous one. Yeah, I mean, there's no world in which you're a musician in which uh, travel isn't a large part of your experience. You know, um, the when you you get you you have two hours maximum on stage uh, a day, and the the other twenty two are are usually spent either sitting in a moving vehicle or or driving a moving vehicle. Yeah, I, I heard an interview with John Darnielle of the Mountain Goats a while ago, and, and he kind of pointed out that, like, when you're on tour, you are on the clock 24 hours a day. Like, that is your full-time job. It is not the two hours you're on stage. It's it's everything. You're always you're always there at work. Well, and it's also the question about, you know, when people are putting bands together or, like, which musicians have long careers. Um, oftentimes, it's not necessarily the people who are the best musicians, but they are the people who um, who it's the most easy and comfortable and fun to hang out with because you have to fill those other 22 hours and you have to be around people those other 22 hours. Yeah. This is something the main character in your book really struggles with. It it sometimes seems like he prefers traveling around the country alone in his van with the mattress in back than he does being on tour with other musicians or being part of a kind of package bill. Um, and, and I know you've done both of those things. Do you have a preference between those two approaches to touring? Uh, it just really depends. I mean, I, I, there's almost nothing I like better than driving around by myself. So I, I, um, I, I understand that point of view very intimately. Um, but there's also nothing like the camaraderie that comes with it, uh, being in a band. 
Um, there's a safety in numbers and a safety in volume um, that, uh, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're driving around with people that you know and people you're friends with, there's a gang aspect to that where, where you can, even if the, the, you arrive and the room's not full, uh, at least you've got your friends around you um, and you don't have that protective uh, aspect when you're, when, you're tra- when you're traveling by yourself. You're really on your own if it's a bad night. Yeah. Um, I, I knew you first as the keyboard player for the rock band, The Hold Steady, and in that band, you're you're kind of known as being a, a very bullying presence on stage. You're, you're playing the keyboards and you're kind of jumping around and dancing around, and you know you look like you have you're having a great time. Um, and but so I was kind of surprised to read in this book uh, the the pretty brutal uh, stories of being on tour. Um, you know, of course they're fictional, but the picture of the touring life that you paint in this book is uh, is not a sort of like um, rock star fantasy. It's, it's very, uh, uh, boring and sad a lot of the time. Is that an aspect of touring that, that you are uh, familiar with personally as well? That's one aspect of it. I mean, it really, it contains multitudes. <laughs> you get these incredible euphoric moments and you get the, the stretches of tremendous boredom and, um, you get stretches of tremendous exhaustion, uh, where you have to really call on all your resources to get up to speed for the show. Um, you know, I, it's funny to me, I, I, I've done a bunch of interviews around the release of this book and, and people there, there's a certain kind of reader who has what seems like an obsession with trying to connect the main character to me. And I, all I can say is if you've seen me on stage, I don't, I don't see how, how you, you, you right. would think that a glum character like Rudy, uh, connects to, you know, my preferred performance style, which is much more outgoing. Um, but certainly, you know, you write a you write a book of fiction, and you have to write all the characters. Um, and so, I certainly the person the you know the way Rudy reacts to things is certainly a, a and something that I can call upon readily. Yeah. You know, uh, I I have maybe a better attitude than he does. I think it was more like um, when I, especially when I was traveling around by myself, you you know, you would end up on bills with these older songwriters. Um, you know, I was in my early thirties at the time and, you know, on bills with people in their, in their mid to late forties doing a similar thing, uh, who had lost that and en- the energy to fight yeah. for the show. Uh, and so when I was writing Rudy, I was thinking of it as like a, more of a cautionary tale. Um, like sure. had I stayed at it for another 15 years, that's, you know, that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the kind of person you don't necessarily want to let yourself turn into. Yeah. I was one time in a record shop in Port Townsend, Washington, which is like a, a pretty small out of the way uh, town. And the, the guy, I was buying a Towns Van Sant record and the guy was like, oh man, I almost saw him. He, he came through here in 1994 and played at a bar down the street, but I had work so I couldn't go. I just like could not imagine anything sadder than like one of literally the greatest songwriters of all time performing to like 10 people who don't know who he is in in a tiny town in Washington. Mm -hmm. And I I feel like you get a lot of those kind of scenes in this book. Yeah. I mean, I think you get a lot of those kinds of scenes in the lives of people like that, you know, Mm -hmm. solo singer songwriters. um, It's tricky. Not many of them become, get to the sort of sustainable high, you know, theater level. Um, that that we often associate with 
thinking about the songwriters that we really respect. Um, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of those. <laughs> you, you end up playing a lot of second and third tier towns for for a few dozen people. Uh, on the other hand, that's how you can make it work economically. Um, if you're only one person, you don't you don't necessarily need as much. Uh, uh, over, your your overhead is not as high. Uh, so if you can make a couple hundred bucks on a show, uh, you can you can make a living that way. If you if you don't ever go home, yeah. I'm interested in kind of this question of like being part of like doing your own thing, having your own, you know, touring in a van with your, with yourself and your guitar versus like being a sort of cog in someone else's machine, which is something that Rudy deals with in this book. He has a, a a friend who he kind of helped out early in his career, but then the friend becomes much more famous than Rudy and kind of takes Rudy along on the road as his opening act. And it, it, it goes uh, really poorly to not to spoil anything about the plot. Um, and I was wondering if that's kind of a tension that you've thought about, like, do you feel comfortable, you know, kind of plugging in and, and being a part of someone else's vision? I mean, you've, you've played on other people's records. You've been a part of the whole study. You've produced other people's records, but you also have your own projects. Do you find one of those things to be much more satisfying than the other? Or, or are they kind of just two different aspects of the, the life of a working musician? I like to do a lot of different things. So I think if I was doing only one of any of them, uh, I would be dissatisfied. Um, and, you know, when I made the decision to leave the Hold Steady in 2009, that was a little bit part of it is that that, that had be, had taken over my entire creative life. Um, and and I'm happier when I can be when I can have my hand in a bunch of pots. Um, so, I mean, in terms of like my solo act, I have a realistic. Um, sense of where I stand in the, in the pecking order of that sort of thing. So I'm perfectly happy to, to go on, you know, to play shows or to go on the road as a, as a support act for, for friends of mine who do a similar thing, but are, are much more popular. Um, I think that's, that's just part of the game and you want to play to bodies. Um, one of the thing, one of the reasons I wanted to uh, spend some time as a solo act was, was sort of because of that idea of with a band, um, you can escape the brunt of the challenge if it's a tough room. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you're one person, you can't. And just as a performer, I wanted to sort of test myself in that way. Like, can you get up in front of a room full of strangers and, um, and convince them that it's worth, that you're worth their attention? Yeah. Um, and to do, and to do that though, you do need, people in the room. <laughs> yeah, sure. um, and so, you know, one aspect of it and a slightly more gratifying aspect of it occasionally is, is doing these, these opening slots because then you do have a full room. Usually uh, if the headliner is a real headliner, um, they're not there to see you, but they, are, they could be convinced. Mm -hmm. um, and if you win them over, you can sell a lot of merch and make a lot of new fans, you know? I did a, a month long tour opening for Frank Turner at the sort of height of his rise in, in, in the UK 10 years ago. And, and that was, I mean, that was great for me because they were sort of primed to be interested in whoever Frank was interested in. They didn't know who I was, but you know, I had their, I, I, they, I, I had their ear mandated for 45 minutes. So, so if I, if I couldn't win them over, that was sort of on me. Yeah, that does strike me as a, a very different kind of performer challenge than playing with the Hold Steady, who's a who's a band that has 
you know, a, a pretty intense cult following and has been building that following for 20 years. And so pretty much if, if you play a show with them, I, I, I imagine probably most of the audience not only knows their music, but knows every, every line of every song. <laughs> yeah, but there were a few years where when we were establishing establishing ourselves where we would play opening gigs, you know, mm-hmm. we uh, there were, we did two gigs opening for the get up kids right when they broke up. And that was a lot of blank faces, you know, <laughs> um, their fans were, were, were confused at best. Um, I'm trying to think of, we, we were on a bill once at NYU where it was us and then iron and wine solo, which <laughs> are two very different vibes. Sure. Um, the biggest crowd that I've ever played for was we opened for the Rolling Stones at Slane Castle in Dublin. Um, and, you know, 60,000 Rolling Stones fans are not that motivated to be interested in an opening act. Um, so the whole study is, you know, is no stranger to looking out at a couple thousand unresponsive faces. We don't do that much anymore, obviously, um, but we certainly did it for a long time. And and you got a song lyric out of that uh, Rolling Stones opening. Yeah. I'm thinking of others now. We did a month with the Counting Crows. Uh, their fans were, were slightly more reactive. We did a week with the Dave Matthews Band that was just a real slog. You know, because the, <laughs> those fans are just, they're out in the tailgate. They're not even in the shed. So you're looking out at, you know, 10,000 empty seats and five scattered Hold Steady fans <laughs> at, you know, at 6.30 p.m. Yeah. Man, I, I don't know what it is with that guy. I feel like his music is pretty good, but uh, uh, his fans seem to be, well, we don't need to get into that. Um, yeah. I want to talk to you about your title, uh, Someone Should Pay for Your Pain. I think this is a very interesting title. And it's it's one that the more I think about, the more kind of alternate meanings suggest themselves to me. Um, it's 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 on a billboard in the novel about like a like a lawyer who sort of an ambulance chasing lawyer who said personal injury lawyer kind of guy. Um, But obviously that's not, you know, that's not an important moment in the novel other than that it provides the title. And it feels like at first it seems like it's about revenge, um, you know, payback. But then it also strikes me that it's kind of about maybe what we ask of artists or, or, and maybe particularly performing artists that they kind of, that they perform their pain for us and, and we pay them for it, you know, literally with money or with our, time and attention. Um, what kind of drew you to this title? Was this a title you actually saw on a billboard? And, and kind of what, which of these meanings seem most relevant to you in this book? Yeah, I think all of those are true. I, you know, and then there's this aspect of Rudy that's, that's, that's self-pitying in a not very um, flattering way uh, that I think also ties into that. It was a real billboard I saw, and I, I immediately wrote it down. Uh, it wasn't the title I started with, um, I was thinking of this book as being called the Morris column for the whole, while I was writing it. And, uh, and everyone who read drafts of it said that that's a boring title. You should come up with a better title. Um, <laughs> your last book had such a great title. How come you can't come up with something like the humorless ladies of border control? Uh, uh, finally I did. My friend, um, pointed out to me, I now realize correctly that I had mistaken my central metaphor for a title. And that those two are not the same thing. Talk a little more, more about that. What do you mean by your central metaphor being the Morris Column? Oh, the Morris Columns. There's this uh, famous photograph by Brassai of uh, uh, a Morris Column, which is one of those cylindrical uh, 
things that you see in in some streets, particularly European streets, that that the the posters for the upcoming shows get get pasted onto. Um, and I was just thinking about you know the faces of the performers on these wheat pasted posters that they're coming through their faces there. Then it starts, you know, the, the tape starts to come off and the, and the poster starts to, to fade or get, or get ripped off by the elements or pasted over by a new face coming along. And so this sort of, that sort of like, you know, passing of the, the, the circularity of the music, the, the, the touring musician's life where you're, you're very transient, um, you know, you have about five years of, of a peak if you're lucky, and then somebody new comes over and their face gets pasted over yours. Um, and then just this circularity of, of, of touring, especially in the United States, that you're just going around and around and around. Um, and and I, I came up with this long list of metaphors around that. I think most of which are in the book, um, end up in the book, but like the, the push mowers with those, with the, with the, um, with the, with the sort of entwined blades Mm -hmm. that you, you cut your lawn with. Um, uh, that's what the devil's tower thing is about is this, this sort of hub of the, of these circles around the country, stuff like that. Just the, and the, the, like the, this, yeah, the circularity, the treadmill that you can't get off. Um, and, um, and, and, and the, um, I don't know this thing, this object that's the that's the that's the place where your your face gets pasted. Seemed like um, I, it still seems like a pretty strong metaphor. Yeah. Um, there's one question I've been trying to figure out how to ask you, but I guess I'll just ask it in the simplest way I can. Um, Rudy is uh, kind of an asshole. Like he's a unpleasant person. He's like rude and pretentious, uh, and and kind of full of himself, and makes a lot of really, really awful decisions that hurt other people. Um, he's not sort of likable in a traditional sense. Um, is that something that you like as a reader, and is that something that you kind of intentionally wanted to do as a writer to kind of make your reader spend a lot of time in the in the head of somebody who? Uh, is in many ways pretty unpleasant. I do like that as a reader. <laughs> it's funny that you ask that. Um, I, you know, I like Thomas Bernhard. I like Welbeck. Um, I like some of these, a lot of these disagreeable characters um, because I, you know, it's in the same way that I think some people get turned on by, um, by offensive punk bands or, 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 you know, boundary pushing comedians because you get this vicarious um, thrill out of someone being an asshole in a, in a sort of uh, put on theatrical way in the way that you don't get to be in your regular life. Um, but also um, I, I think that it's requ- it's required for the story. You know, I, I've, uh, Plenty of plenty of ink has been spilled on this topic of um, whether or not a protagonist has to be likable, um, and I think you know most sophisticated readers, if I may be so bold, um, agree that it, that they don't. Um, there's an ego aspect for an author, I think, because of the inevitability of being identified with your protagonist that that um, that wants 
I think forces some authors to to try to justify them or redeem them or 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 make them more likable. And I don't I don't have that kind of insecurity, I guess. Um, if that doesn't sound too egotistical in its own right. Um, um, I think, uh, you know, people have these uncharitable thoughts and you know, uncharitable internal monologues, um, and a lot of people express them in the world. I think that it's not inaccurate to how, how people are, especially pe- someone like this who has really removed himself from any social responsibilities. It's not like he's spending a lot of time around people. Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. He is pretty alone. Like, not only is he lonely, but he's actually, like, literally alone for a lot of the book. Yeah, and so he doesn't... He, that 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 muscle has sort of atrophied in him, I think, in terms of, like, how to interact with people and how to be polite or diplomatic or any of the things um, that might get him the, the things that he actually purports to want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people have felt that over the past year and a half. I mean, I certainly have, that, like, my ability just to, like, know how to act around other people is uh, it, not going real strong right now. Yeah. <laughs> Um, one of the unpleasant uh, thought cycles that your protagonist gets caught up in is is a lot of like really poisonous resentment towards his friends who are more uh, successful than he is. And it made me think of the Gore Vidal quote where he said, uh, every time one of my friends succeeds, a part of me dies. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that, I mean, you know, without getting, I feel like all my questions are veering towards the sort of autobiographical, but uh, maybe a better way to put it is, is, uh, why why was that something that you wanted to explore uh in, in this book i mean it's an old it's a it's a very classic showbiz story in some ways um you know if you if you subscribe to the theory that there are only so many stories in the world um the one of the the, the oldest show business ones is is the the person who's who sees a younger person uh surpass them right it's a star is born it's uh, all about that, Eve. All about Eve. That Jeff Bridges movie, Crazy Heart. Um, you know, so that's that in and of itself is not is not unfamiliar. I don't think to anyone. Um, um, why 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 think about the resentment? I mean, it, it's a. It, I think one of the things about about middle age, one of the projects of middle age, which is one of I guess one of the topics of the the, the book is is acclimatizing yourself to your own limitations um and the people who are not able to do that are are the ones who get consumed by these kinds of feelings i think um you know the publishers listed it as a coming of age book which i don't disagree with exactly but i think that um um we often think of coming of age as something that happens once somewhere between puberty and, you know, early adulthood. Um, and I actually think it, it, it happens. You come of age each time you reach a new age plateau, you have to come of age all over, over again. Um, and, uh, and, and that is something that has to happen to Rudy uh, and part of that is is dealing with this resentment, which, um, which I I'm not sure I would say he 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 does really. Yeah, that's I mean, without spoiling too much of the of the ending of this, um, do you feel like that's something that he's closer to at the end of the book than he is at the beginning of the book? 
<laughs> maybe like a baby step, but not, but not in a, <laughs> but not in a way yeah. that, 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 that really solves any of the problems with, with Ryan, uh, with the, yeah. the, the, the once upon a time protege. Um, you know, I didn't want to give him, I felt like it would be cheap to give him a, a, a real redemptive arc. Um, cause he hasn't done that much to earn it. Um, but you do have to see him like nudged a, a sl- slightly closer to the light. <laughs> yeah. Um, which, you know, he does, he sidesteps one responsibility by taking on another one, which is morally complicated, right? Because he, he takes on a, a responsibility that he will be praised for while evading a responsibility that almost no one will know that he's evaded. The, I, I sort of thought that the sort of Hollywood version of this book maybe starts somewhere around 30 pages from the end where he uh, he, he makes that, te- that second decision, which I feel like it's not spoiling too much because this is on the back of the book. He, he kind of uh, takes up the task of bringing uh, his, is it his, his niece? Niece, yeah. Yeah, his niece, uh, who's run away from home, back to, uh, back to her home. Um, and that that sort of feels like it's opening a door into his his redemption arc, possibly. Uh, and yet that's not the focus of the book, really. Was there had you, did you sort of think about a version of the book where that was most of the story? And, and if so, why did you decide to tell this much more uh, complicated kind of multi-part nonlinear saga of this uh, character's life? I guess because a complicated story is more interesting than a than a straightforward Hollywood redemption story. Yeah, sure. I guess that's an easy question. Easy answer. Also, also because uh, the first the first hundred pages or whatever the first half of the book was the part that I knew that I had sort of in my mind when I started writing it. I wrote the first chapter as a self contained short story, uh, and then decided that I could expand that and see if I could get a novel out of it. Um, so with that, for, with the first, the first chapter already implies this relationship between Rudy and Ryan, it implies a backstory with the band. And so, um, and I sort of had a sense of, of where the Rudy and Ryan story was going to go. And so it was, it was just a matter of, of writing those pages. And I figured by the time I got to that point, uh, maybe I would have an idea of what the back half would be, um, and in the meantime, I had done. I wrote this piece for Slate about uh, musicians who tour with their children, um, and that was really interesting. Talking to to people, uh, not so much the 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 ones who bring their kids on the tour bus and they have the, have a nanny to watch them and so on, but the ones who are actually um, driving around in a little car with their children and and have to you know find venues that will let the kids come in and. Uh, you know, in some cases the kids would sit on stage during the show, you know, all this stuff. It was so interesting. And I was, and I thought maybe, you know, and I already knew like the Lily character is implied in the first half. And I thought that this would be a really useful device for getting Rudy to, um, to get a third party opinion on himself, you know, Mm -hmm. because he's been in his bubble for so many years at that point. And if you're in the music, the live music business, you're all, you're, I think I say this in the book, you, you, you're, you can, you can get away with feeling like you're basically 27 for a very long time. Um, because that's sort of the median age of the, you know, somewhere between late teenagers. And by the time people's 
tap out in their in their early 30s. Um, and he's he's much older than that, but he hasn't been in a position where he's had to rethink um, the ideals by which he has uh, which have which have shaped his life up until that point. And so to be confronted with someone who really, you know, possibly the only person at this point who really um, who, who who looks up to him and thinks he's he's actually made right decisions forces him to confront whether he actually wants to defend that point of view. Do you think that like being a touring musician is almost inherently uh, really dangerous and it, and it's just inherently really easy to make a series of uh, questionable decisions when you're living that life? Or do you feel like this is more of a, it's the other side thing that, you know, people who are drawn to, uh, being kind of intransient and and having these short term relationships or friendships or whatever are drawn to being touring musicians. I mean, both. I guess is the answer. Uh, Great, I hit it out of the park today. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, the, um, uh, I think the kind of person who is drawn to this sort of lifestyle, where you're inherently always pulling yourself away from from long term connections are the kind of, you know, you're trying to keep one step ahead of your own brain, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and musicians, I, I tend to think that the people who are drawn to this kind of lifestyle are going to have messy lives regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, but it's certainly exacerbated by, um, by the day-to-day details of that, of that sort of thing, you know? Um, it, you know, I I remember from the early years of touring with with punk bands where everybody was broke. Um, you would roll into a place in mid afternoon, and you're not playing till till eleven. You have to pay for food, but the beer is free, <laughs> and you don't know anything about the town you are. And that that's just sort of a recipe for 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 alcoholism. Just for example, um, you know anybody in that town who wants to get outside of themselves for a night, you're a useful vector for that because you're going to be gone the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can get ensnared in all kinds of, um, in all kinds of things that, that people project on you as the, as the visiting, as the visitor <laughs> who's, who's on the next train out. Um, yeah. I mean, it's tricky. It's very tricky just on a very basic financial level. Um, you have a hard time justifying yourself um, because the way the economics of our country is set up, uh, they're set up for people with, with, with W2s um, and regular incomes. You know, if you want to, if you want, not even if you want to buy a house, but even, you know, if you, if you want to get a lease in a lot of places, it's tricky if you're getting paid in cash all the time. Um, or, or, you know, in some, in, in some cases to even to get a credit card or all these things that require like a paper trail and a permanent ad and a fixed address. Um, not to mention all the social things about keeping friends and relationships going. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is something that, that Rudy really grapples with is this question of like, has he been chasing this dream for longer than it makes sense? But also like, has he been chasing this dream for so long that he's burned any bridge that might take him back to some kind of a normal life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of, 
the people that I know in the business who have had enough success to sort of keep it going past their 20s, but maybe not enough to keep it going into their 50s, that's a very tricky reset to do because, you know, if you're 35, 36, you haven't had a day job maybe ever, but certainly in, uh, certainly in some time. Um, and all your, meanwhile, all your friends are well onto their careers and they have a mortgage and they have family and kids and you're starting from scratch. Um, yeah, very tricky to do. And, and you don't, you, you wouldn't necessarily know it if you're not around. That's another, you know, there's this, uh, Aaron Comet Bus is this, you know, well-known writer about punk and his most recent book. Um, he talks, he uses the metaphor of, you know, you feel like you're running a race with all your, you, all your closest friends and you're all sort of, you're having a great time and you're going towards this destination, everyone together. And then one day you look around and you're the only one still running and everyone sort of peeled off along the way and you don't, you didn't even notice when it happened. And I feel like that's sort of what happened, happens to Rudy in this book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is a very simple question, but the book contains lyrics of some of Rudy's songs, you know, not, not full songs, but it, you know, lines here and there. Did you write actual songs for, for Rudy? I did. Yeah. I wrote songs for Rudy. I wrote songs for Ryan. And I, I even wrote a song for, for Pashlo, Al Pashlo. Um, and that was a real fun writing exercise to sort of, um, you know, sort of like writing a screenplay. You put yourself in the voice of the character and say, what kind of, what kind of lyrics uh, would this person write? Same thing with writing the fake pitchfork review. You know, it's just these like sort of these genre exercises, writing prompts. Mm-hmm. Um, and to sort of differentiate, um, be able to differentiate a Ryan lyric from a Rudy lyric, um, or even I, to write to write, you know, Juvenilia right. is another. You know, like how what would a what would the lyrics of a pretentious sixteen year old sound like? <laughs> I, I gather you have some experience with that uh, with that life a little bit. Right? I have some experience with being a pretentious teenager. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, we don't need to go into that too much, but but yes, myself as well. Um, are those songs are, are going to come out sometime? Is there a companion novel or a, a album to this novel in the works? I considered it. I considered it like a Franz Nikolai sings Rudy Pover. It's tricky because, like I said, given the extent to which people want to identify you with your protagonist anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like how close to the to the red hot wire do you want to go? <laughs> right, right. Um, you know, if you're Philip Roth, you lean into it. Uh, do I have the balls for that? I don't know. Sure. Um, I have a question about the kind of structure of the book. It's got this very nonlinear structure where you're kind of in different times in Rudy's life for a long time, but then those are not presented, you know, sequentially. Um, were there any novels that were kind of models for that structure while you were writing it? I actually think it is relatively, I mean, to my mind, it is sort of chronologically simple. It opens in the present day. It flashes back to the earliest point that we see him. And then it, it carries on chronologically until we catch up at the present day. I guess it's just like the Odyssey, right? It's the same structure. It's an opening scene and then a flashback. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's a, it seems to me like a pretty straightforward move, like a, mo- a movie might do that, mm-hmm. you know? Um, We've actually already talked about a movie that does that, which is all about Eve. Um, so yeah. maybe maybe that was subconsciously uh, in your mind. And Sunset Boulevard, 
right? Also, yeah. speaking of showbiz stories, showbiz parables. <laughs> it's interesting hearing you call, you know, you've used the word showbiz a couple times to refer to this uh, book, um, which I feel like that's a term that a lot of punks would sort of uh, cringe at. Uh, you know, I think a lot of punks don't want to think that they're in something called showbiz. And uh, Rudy's definitely not a punk by the end of the novel, but he, he starts out in a punk band. And I, I wonder kind of what your relationship to punk is at this point in your life. Um, you had a, you know, you played on a song on Rock Against Bush. So your, your punk credentials are, are you know, very uh, well established. But um, I feel like punk has a particularly intense uh, antagonistic relationship to any kind of idea of like mainstream success or uh, adjusting yourself to the realities of the world. And it seems like the, the transition from like being a young musician to being a middle-aged musician might be especially difficult for someone coming out of that scene. Um, so yeah, I mean, what, is, what does punk mean to you now and how has that meaning evolved as you've gotten older? I think uh, I'm someone who came to it later than people often do because I grew up in the woods um, and so there wasn't a punk scene. So it wasn't like these people who grew up in in Jersey and were going to see hardcore shows when they were 13. Um, I came to college and I had a roommate who started taking me to like pop, pop punk and ska shows at the wetlands when I was 18. And then um, so I sort of got involved in that. And then World Inferno, I was 23 when I joined. And that's really so you know, in the way that they say about, about religious converts, the late converts are the most, are the most intense. Um, because I didn't have to, I didn't have it as a teenage experience that I had to, um, had to ostentatiously turn away from, if you know what I mean. Um, I love it as a, as a, as an ideal, you know, as a way of, as a way of, um, being in the world and as a way of being against the world. Uh, I think it's a useful stance to be able to access. Um, you know, do I want to be constantly justifying myself to 16 year old boys on the internet? No, of course not. <laughs> you know, I'm a 44 year old man with a, with a, with a car and a mortgage and two kids. Um, and, but on the other hand, you know, punk's been around for 50 years. So, you know, punk rock is dad rock. <laughs> Um, and I, I don't think I'm the first and I know that I'm not the first to notice that, um, that the idea of selling out is not the poisonous idea that it, that it was 25 years ago. Um, I would be surprised if anyone who thinks of themselves as, as punk in these days, I mean, I don't think, you know, I don't think anyone gives Jeff Rosenstock a hard time for being popular. You know what I mean? Yeah. They feel like he's maintained what they liked about him and he's just grown his audience. Um, the objections, I think, come when you've really staked a political identity, staked your pop, your popularity is tied to your pol political identity in some way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I did this another piece about about the etymology of selling out, which I won't get deeply into here. But, you know, it comes from leftist politics. It comes from. And, and race politics of people who who were perceived to have betrayed um, uh, um, their their politics or their or their racial identity in the in the in the quest for success and so you know the last band that I feel like really took the brunt of this accusation was a band like against me uh, because their politics were so tied up in in why people were drawn to them in the first place um, 
they were able to move up beyond that. Um, and, and time has passed and I don't, I don't, I can't think of any band that really any, or any act that, um, that, that, that people seriously, um, have issues with that now. I mean, even people have even come back around on green day. Yeah. You know, and um, this is one, one of the biggest rock, one of the last remaining stadium rock bands, uh, that, that rock produced. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested as well in the kind of the leftist politics in your book, which kind of intersect with the punk stuff as well. Um, you have one character who is volunteering for Nader in 2000 and then is volunteering for Dean in 2004. So, you know, she's already kind of sliding, uh, you know, maybe slowly and imperceptibly at first, but she's already kind of sliding out of radical politics and into something a little more accommodated to the mainstream. Um, I don't know. I think people forget that Dean was the radical choice in 2004. Sure. Yeah. Was, I want to talk more about that. Well, I, you know, he, that was just the, his positioning against yeah. Kerry in the, in the primary. So if, if you were, you know, the kind of person who would have been, who would have been a Bernie supporter in, uh, in the Bernie elections would have been a Dean supporter in 04 and would have been a Nader supporter. And like, I, to me, that's a straight through line, regardless yeah, yeah. of what, of what the career of Dean went, went on to do. Mm-hmm. That he was the choice for that kind of person, for the like white progressive in, in, in Iowa in 2004. Do you feel like Cass is kind of like the anti-Rudy in a sense, in that like she does sort of seem to find a way to like stay true to what was important to her at a young age, but also to like have a normal life? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why they, they can't stay together. One of the many reasons. <laughs> yeah. And that's also kind of why she's not the main character, right? Because that's a much less interesting story. It's a success story. Yeah. It's a success story. I mean, to get back to your, sorry, I, to, I didn't answer no, your no. question about, about show, showbiz. I mean, I'm my relationship to showbiz is that I'm someone who's always been fascinated by that professionalized aspect of perform, of being a performer and an artist, um, you know, going back to vaudeville and, and before. And I think um, that's a, that I think, if you're going to be in in bands for a living, that that's a useful way to think about it, and that that's that aspect of it is is what a lot of what makes it hard for people coming out of the punk scene to to transition to a longer term relationship to it, um, because there is this fetish of authenticity and of like especially emotional authenticity. Um, that if you're going to be playing every night is, is, is exhausting to maintain. Mm-hmm. Like you have to professionalize yourself a little bit as a performer and be, be able to, um, you know, jump around and do the moves that, that express exuberance and, right. and emotional release without necessarily, um, you know, diving deep into that pit of catharsis on a nightly basis on command. And that seems something that seems to be something that's like very normal and healthy to me. I mean, I come out of a theater background. So like the idea that you would be on stage pretending to have an emotion that you're not really feeling or you're you know doing the physical motions that get you to that emotional place, even if you're not there originally feels like, yeah, that's what performing is. But there's a kind of an expectation in at least in kind of certain punk and punk descended musics that there's something phony about that. Um, yeah. I mean, presumably you're not feeling like, you know, jumping around every night, but you, you go up and, and do it. Does that ever feel like icky to you? Or does that just feel like, you know, that's showbiz, baby? 
Yeah, both. I've gone through phases where I where I, I it, it felt intolerable, um, and I had to pass through those phases because because it's just it's a coping mechanism. It's the only way to do it, like you like you say. And a lot of times, if you act as if, um, you know, your body and your psyche is very suggestible. Sometimes you can get there, and and I've I've come to realize that usually people can't tell the difference. <laughs> so, um, to the extent that Ameri- that that you know pop that. I'm going to say rock music listeners have have hangups about authenticity, which is a real fraught. I think it's a problem with how especially American music consumers um, talk about talk about bands and talk about class and talk about race. Um, it's um, it, it. I think that makes it hard to talk about, um, but it's it's part of being a it's part of being a pro, baby. Uh, I have another very easy question, which is uh, your book has a lot of fake band names. Was it fun coming up with a bunch of fake band names? Oh, my God. So fun. You know, every people do that anyway, right? Like, people, yeah. everybody's like, hey, you I know, know what list, friends. <laughs> you know, it would be a good band name. Um, and so I got to pick some of the best out of that. Yeah. Um, and then you favorite? get to, well, you, I thought <laughs> the plural nouns and various artists. Yeah. You know, I, I, I thought about the plural nouns in the aughts when the, you know, the strokes had their hit and then you got all these baby strokes that were all the plural nouns. Mm-hmm. Um, that was that was a joke I'd had around for a long time. And then various artists, <laughs> you know, it's like a band calling themselves free beer. You know, just yeah. like if you put that on the on the chalkboard outside and then you get to play once you have the you have to fill out. I, I wanted to be very sh- clear to situate. Um, to situate Rudy's world as an entirely different ecosystem than our than our world, mm-hmm. uh, I didn't want to have any reference to any real venue or any real act, um, because I wanted to make it clear that this is like a parable um, that's based on archetypes that we recognize, but but that are you know very much removed from anyone that that you might that a reader might think they recognize. Um, but then you get to play with archetypes. Um, you know, I think everybody knows the kind who's been around this sort of world understands that there's a kind of performer who is like a real name dropper and social climber. And, you know, their record always sounds like who their most famous friend is at the time. Um, or like with various artists, you know, the band that's like the radical collective, but then they have a freak hit and they, they find their radical values uh, can expand to accommodate capitalism pretty frictionlessly. <laughs> the the Chumbawamba saga. It's the Chumbawamba story, exactly. Yeah. If if listeners don't know anything about the radical history of Chumbawamba, uh, it, it's it's a real treat to dive into that Wikipedia hole. Yeah, I mean the various artist story is very is is explicitly the Chumbawamba. I find Chumbawamba's story so fascinating, um, endlessly fascinating. I pitched the thirty three and a third book on Chumbawamba once. It, didn't obviously didn't go anywhere, but I've done a lot of I've done a lot of thinking about Chumbawamba's <laughs> career. I would read that if if you ever get that Chumbawamba book put together, let me know. I'll have you back on the show to talk about it. Oh man, I would love to. Um, that leads me to my my perhaps last question, uh, which is: Do you have another project <laughs> in the works, or or are you kind of like uh, letting yourself take a break after uh, writing your first novel? Which congratulations on that, by the way. Thank you. Yeah, I wish I could take a break, but I I have a 
I'm under contract with the University of Texas Press to um, to produce another book of nonfiction, um, which I'm a couple months past deadline on that one. So I'm a little under the gun. Um, that one is going to be called Band People, and it's um and it's a story of uh, also you know the sort of character actors of the popular music industry, the middle class musicians, the working lives, the you know how I'm just so fascinated just sort of from a sociological and economic point of view about this thing that we call bands, especially the the sort of post the 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 wellspring of indie bands and punk bands that came out of the, the our band could be your life generation of the eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, this combination of quasi family, small business, creative collaboration, vehicle for all kinds of ideas and, and politics that in a lot of cases are formed um, before people are mature enough or forward thinking enough to really think through all of the, 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 the aspects of creating this kind of family slash small business. Um, and then how they, how they, how they adjust, um, again, if they stay in that, if they stay in that world, not as a star, but as a working musician. And so I talked to about 80, 80 ish, um, 80 ish people, on those topics. And, and that's the book I'm writing now. All right. Well, great. In a way, it's a similar theme, you know, about how sure. do you make a lot, how do you make a life in this, in this, in this weird ecosystem? Yeah. And university of Texas press has one of the best music book series, uh, around. So congratulations on getting with them. If I, if I let myself, I would just interview nobody, but people who'd written books for them. So, uh, Oh, they're killing it. They're killing oh my it. gosh. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, that the I mean the the, the flagship is Hanif Abdurraqib's Tribe Called Quest book, which I, I taught for a couple of years in my in my writing about music class at Berkeley, and it was always a hit. And there's a lot in there to talk yeah. about. That book's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Franz, thanks so much for uh, being on New Books and Performing Arts. It was a, a real pleasure to get to talk to you about your wonderful novel. Thank you. Always happy to talk, and nice to meet you. <laughs>